Your Lending Era, the podcast where we dive into the world of residential, business and commercial finance, bringing you expert insight, tips and strategies to help you navigate the intricate landscape of lending in Australia. I'm one of your hosts, Jessica, and in today's episode, we're going to be talking a little bit about the ever-changing nature of seeking funding within Australia. Here with me today, we have Trilogy Funding's Managing Director, David Thomas. Hey, Jess. And our financial strategist, Hope Westbury. Jessie G, what's happening? <laughs> oh, not too much we got here today with actually quite a bit of time, we didn't did. we? Not like last week. Feeling relaxed. Relaxed, enthused, energised. Ready to go. Okay, beautiful. Well, unlike the weather uh, outside, which is pretty <laughs> terrible and, and daft being that we're in Canberra, we're going to try and heat things up a little bit here today and talk about lending in Australia. Ah, excellent. Let's <laughs> <laughs> jump in. Let's jump in. Okay, so um, what we're going to try and, and cover today is kind of the last... 15, 20 years worth of lending um, and some of the changes that we've seen on a macro level rather than just the little micro changes that occur pretty much every other day, as we know. Um, so with uh, kicking off here, we've got uh, our resident office dad, David. <laughs> it's <laughs> What better person to bring the heat than David T? I know, you know, when you want to talk about finance and, and the changes in the troubling industry, you go to a dad, don't you? Yeah, you, you do. do. You do. Dads know everything. If you need a complaint, dad's there. <laughs> okay, Dave. Let's um, kick off and start talking about kind of when you first started in the industry and what was normal then, and then we'll go on from there. Yeah, okay. So, and uh, to frame why we're having this conversation is when we chat to people nowadays, whenever time goes on, they always say, why do you need so much information? Yeah. So if you date back to when I first started, which was kind of pre-GFC times, for a loan application for a PAYG person, we would literally take 100 points of ID, so driver's license and Medicare card, and a payslip. See, compared to what you and I are used to, Jess, like that just absolutely yeah. blows my mind. Yeah. It seems like not enough due diligence. No. Very little, right? Yeah. So, and But that was just like the standard at the time, right? This is before GFC, before response. We still had kind of ninja style loans and low doc loans and no doc loans and, and all that kind of thing. So it really has kind of moved on quite a bit from there. And that's why some older clients that haven't done lending in a while, they, they kind of wonder why is so much documentation needed nowadays mm, and particularly with all of these things that we see in the news constantly about privacy breaches it's never been more or sorry it's never been less appealing to provide a document regarding your financial circumstances yeah, correct yeah. like all of the latitude breaches and the yeah, big ones like, exactly I feel like the older generation like yours Dave um, <laughs> what um, a are a bit <laughs> are a little bit sceptical. Yes. Yeah, look, they absolutely are. So, And look, I came from a time where it was very little documentation, handwritten loan applications, right, that were faxed to a lender. All right. Wow. So really going back quite a while. And because handwritten applications and we were sending faxes, we wanted to send as little information as possible. And that included tax returns for self-employed people. Mm. So quite often we would take a low doc or a no doc option where self-employed people would purely just declare their income. And that was it. Just on, say. on the faxed away piece of paper, Correct. they would say, we earn 100000 this year. And the bank's like, you know what? That's good enough for me. Correct. We, we trust you. <laughs> we'll you do it on honest. a handshake. Yep. And oh so goodness. now you can see why self-employed people, when you jump forward, they're like, hang on, you need tax returns, financial statements, you want 
you know, portals out of the ATO to show, you know, what my running balance is. You know, you want BASs, you want bank statements for my business, you want business transaction account statements, lease statements. But this is mental. Yeah. Yeah. Only 15 years ago, David, I just told you what I earned (laughs) and I got my loan approved and now you want all this stuff. So it really has moved on quite a bit. So Mm. since those kind of earlier days. And I think it goes without saying as well, some of the documentation that we get is is not really even credit critical. It's just them wanting to have comfort, isn't it? Yeah, correct. It's just comfort. It's supporting documentation. It's uh, sometimes it's just the appearance of the bank making sure that it looks like they asked for all the right documents. Um, oh, wow. Mm. It's just, it seems like a lot for me to wrap my head around. Yeah, that, same. That when my dad was purchasing a property in 2008, he could just walk in with some ID and a payslip and Bob's your uncle. Yeah, and away. And to just show you how that's kind of changed over that period of time, in those kind of, you know, just after GFC times, when lending first started to tighten up after the GFC, yeah. one of the requirements that got bought in from the lenders was if you were self-employed and de- declaring a self-employed income of more than the GST threshold, your business actually had to be registered for GST. That seems like... Common sense. Common Standard. sense, right? Standard. There was outrage. Well, hang on. You know, I've declared the income. Surely they're not going to check my GST registration. Or I've told the bank oh that it's I've been in business for three years and they're going to check my ABN registration, make sure I actually was in business for three years. Like self-employed people in, in post-GFC were outraged at these, you know, brash changes that were preventing them from borrowing. But it was just like the most basic common sense so started rough, to come in. Roughly what year was that change, Dave? So there was 2009 and 2010. Yeah, so that was my last year of high school. Yeah, I was in year eight. Yeah, <laughs> so, so, so fast forward now, you can see how the lending landscape has changed. And you can mm-hmm. see how when you talk to, you know, your uncles and aunties about how they bought six investment properties and they bought this commercial property and, you know, back in their days it was a handshake at the bank and everyone knew who I was. You can see how that kind of came about mm, yeah. because the lending standards were quite relaxed back then. Yep. And it's it's crazy to think how much little work was required from a banking front. Like, they should have been one-day approvals if that's all you're verifying. Yeah, well, they had, to, they what, had to get them off the fax machine first. Uh, but what, what are you verifying, though? Oh, 100%. I'm just thinking about how embarrassed I would be if someone with really lovely handwriting got my fax and they were like, oh, my gosh, this girl's an ogre. <laughs> <laughs> I could not even. I would be so embarrassed. <laughs> okay. So let's chat. You did mention the GFC there and that self-employed change. Was there any other major changes following the GFC? So there was. So a little bit further on, fast forward to kind of 2014, 15. We had kind of APRA and ASIC changes. So this is where the regulatory bodies got involved and and thought, well, hang on, what's going on with property investors? Property investors had done really well prior to GFC and they were starting to do really well again. And um, they had a bit of a look into the percentage of loans that were interest only. Mm -hmm. um, And they had a look at the percentage of loans that were for investors and once they had a look at that, they realised that the marketplace was really investor focused in terms of banking mm-hmm. and also that banks weren't you know, being diligent and making sure people were paying off their loans. So at that point in time, so some rough numbers, at that point in time, um, there was about 40% of all lending was on interest only basis. And 30% of those loans were, well, 30% of lending was for property investors. And so therefore, 
all of the property investors had interest-only loans, mm-hmm. not paying anything off, mm-hmm. and um, 10% of the owner-occupier loans were interest-only. So people weren't even paying the homes off, right? And they so obviously the regulatory bodies got involved and went, well, hang on, you know, what, what, what's going on here? What products do you have? You need yeah. to tighten up on this. So at that point in time, that's where we started to see investor loans attract a pricing premium. Mm-hmm. Up until that point in time, investor loans and owner-occupied loans were usually the same rate. Um, we also saw um, banks discontinue lines of credit. So up until that point in time, you could go to a bank and you could say, hey, I want to borrow $200,000 interest only on a line of credit, and they would give you $200,000 interest only <laughs> attached to your home forever. Never had to pay it back. You could die. You still owe it, right? They weren't asking yeah. for any kind of debt clearance. So around about those that, that time, they started tightening up on all those things. We should bring back the line of credit. That sounds like a really good offer. <laughs> you still can get a line of credit, but the bank probably nowadays wants about 9% interest. I don't yeah. think in the nearly seven years that I've been lending, I have ever done a line of credit. No. But no. It must be old school. Used to do them all the time. Yeah, wow. I know that whenever we find a client with a line of credit, we always have to have this discussion about the fact that the product doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah. Because it's just, it's something that I think people rely on, not not in a sense that they don't have the money there to use it, but you just get used to using it because it's almost like a credit card with a significantly larger limit, isn't it? There was, even prior to this point, there was actually mortgage brokerages and and special, and special certain lenders that would recommend an interest-only line of credit for your home loan and you would deposit all of your pay in it yep. and then you'd use a credit card during the month and then you clear the credit card from the line of credit at the end of the month. So the idea being that you would pay off your home loan faster. But yeah. of course, you never did. No one no, ever paid no, off your no, home loan. No, you wouldn't. No. Not so. with double the interest, right? Yeah. So it was, yeah. So, but that all that kind of stuff, that's all gone by the, by the wayside um, since those kind of 2014, 15 changes. Yeah, that sounds actually quite responsible to have gotten rid of that. I'll stand with ASIC and APRA there and say, job well done. Yeah. So, and, and those changes change the percentage of loans that were on interest only from nearly 40% to 15% within a two-year period. Yes. Because people just went, okay, well, if I've got to pay a premium for it, I'm just not going to pay it. I'll just start paying it off. And I would say that percentage of interest only owner-occupied loans would have changed significantly as well. I went from 10% to near zero. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. why would you want to? Yeah. That's right. Okay. And then after the APRA and ASIC changes, I know that the biggest change um, in recent times, definitely uh, at the start of both mine and, and Hope's career as well, but David, you were there from the, the start to the end of this, is the Royal Commission. Yes. So Royal Commission... Um, Almost everyone remembers it. It wasn't too far, uh, too long ago. Yep. And that's when the way the Royal Commission worked is people got to go and air their grievances with how they had been treated or how their loan applications had been treated by lenders. Mm-hmm. One thing that really came out of that was the responsible lending practice of evidencing people's individual living expenses. So that's why since that point in time, whenever you do a loan application now, the bank wants to see your bank statements and they mm-hmm. want to see what you've been spending the money on and they want to break it up into 14 different categories and you know, make sure that you can continue to spend like that with the new borrowings in yep. place. Because um, I've got a very good friend of mine who's an accountant who's actually an insolvency practitioner accountant. So he's the guy that you ring when you get really get into trouble. And he says, it's amazing, the clients that he has that have really got themselves into trouble, and we're talking about insolvency and, and business liquidations and things like that, 
when he looks at the bank statements, the kids are still at private school. <laughs> There's still a BMW in the driveway. Yeah. You know, the kids are still doing music lessons or pony club or, yeah. or whatever. Um, the money is still going out because people just won't change their living expenses. It's really hard to live at a certain level and then pull back. But I feel like if your business was due to go under, you might want to cut off the pony club lessons just for a bit. You just know? for a bit. <laughs> yeah. But, but the, the, the reality is, um, you know, a lot of people have an image yeah. and they, they when they're yeah. when things are really going bad, they hang on to that image and lenders know that and that's why the living expenses um, have really started to come into play. And I know this is something that I do particularly a lot in my role and that is literally sitting there and going through a spreadsheet that contains 180 days worth of every transaction you have made. Um, and within that, you do see some pretty interesting things as well. And sometimes we end up just having the conversation with the client, uh, particularly if they're, you know, two single, or not two singles, but a couple with no kids, the dink, as we call them, double yep. income, no kids. Right, that's um, you. That is me. <laughs> so if we, we noticed that they were spending, you know, frivolously in some areas like clothing and eating out, sometimes all it takes is a quick conversation, come back in 90 days, and they will drastically reduce those expenses to show that they have the capacity to repay a new loan. Yeah, yeah, correct. Some things can be very easily changed. Yeah. Quite often you'll have a chat to a, to a client, maybe they've got two or three gym memberships running mm-hmm. and they don't even go to the other two gyms. You know, we just need to tidy things up. Yeah. And a lot of my clients are doing their due diligence and they will mm-hmm. come to me and say, oh, hope, you know, like we feel like maybe we have been spending a little bit too much. Yeah. But it may just be that they've rec- recently been on a holiday or mm-hmm. they've just bought a new car or, you know, some kind of thing, substantial purchase that they have made or spending that they wouldn't normally spend. And I say to them, you know, like, those things are going to happen as long as it's not happening every single month, um, then yeah. that's going to be okay. Yeah. So so that gives you the kind of snapshot the last 15 years. You've gone from going for a loan application with a payslip and your, your driver's licence and your Medicare card through to supplying documentation to evidence almost every aspect of your life. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's, it's actually not the banks that want to do it. It's the people that are regulating the banks that want to make sure that this is being put in place. Yeah, because if the banks were doing it that way, we'd probably still be just, you tell us how much you earn and we'll go from there, <laughs> wouldn't they? They've got, they've got money to lend. Yeah, you know? exactly. So. They've got money to lend and money to make. Yeah, I feel correct. like ma- majority of my loan book is probably post-GFC, so I, I don't normally get pushed back, maybe mm. the same way that you do, Dave, but I have had a client say to me once, God, do you want a DNA sample as well? <laughs> Dave had that just this morning. I had that this morning. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, sorry. (laughs) Actually, Hope, that is like the perfect segue into the next part of this chat. Now, Hope, you and I, um, as we've already said, we we entered in the Royal Commission era, if we'll call it, tagging on from our name. Um, And we have worked only in kind of a post-Royal Commission landscape here. So let's talk a little bit about what a client should expect by today's standards exclusively. So by today's standards, obviously times have changed significantly. Um, So Dave sort of touched on ASIC and APRA and they came through pretty strong, especially um, with the most recent Royal Commission. And they sort of said, right, how are we going to put um, things in place to avoid borrowers from, you know, borrowing more than they need or that they have the capacity to repay? So us as brokers are making you know, reasonable inquiries around the client's financial situation and ensuring that we are working in their best interest. Yeah, okay. And off the off the end of that, I know that there's kind of three main areas that we have to kind of stick within. And I think it goes without saying that 
most people, specifically us, I know us for a fact, were doing this prior. But let's talk a little bit about the three key areas going forward that we have to abide by and all kind of lending institutions do as well. Yeah, so the three main areas are what's called responsible lending. Um, We also have best interest duty and then we also have set verification standards that we have to work within. Oh, it sounds like a riot, doesn't it? (laughs) It's super fun. (laughs) Don't you just love compliance? (laughs) I do. Like when I hear compliance, I'm like weak at the knees. Yeah. So fun. Okay, well, let's kick off with the responsible lending. So that is where you are. You, You mentioned reasonable inquiry, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So essentially... Uh, responsible lending is governed by ASIC um, and ASIC is the Australian Securities and Investment Commission. Um, A little bit boring I know but uh, (laughs) they're just essentially an independent Australian government body set up to regulate consumer credit in Australia. So basically just off what the back of everything that Dave has said, um, it sounds like back in the day that didn't exist at all, and it's just ensuring that those practices are now different. They definitely did exist. I think they were just on a beach in Hawaii, yeah, just chilling a little bit in the background. <laughs> um, so as a broker, under responsible lending, um, we just have to make sure that we're making reasonable inquiries about a client's financial situation and their requirements and objectives. Yeah, and in most cases that would look like um, you know a telephone conversation or a meeting where we're jotting down some of their details and we're asking them to disclose liabilities statement of position, yeah? It just avoids the borrower from borrowing loans that do not suit them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. And then best interest duty, what does that mean? So uh, best interest duty is a law that requires mortgage brokers to act in the client's best interest when supplying credit assistance. Okay, so essentially we can't do anything that profiteers us and puts someone in a bad position. No, it has to be in the best interest of the client. Okay, that, that one is very common sense because I, I cannot imagine how you would live your life doing the Melissa Caddick <laughs> of mortgage brokering. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what that law is there yeah. to do. It's a it's a requirement to make sure that we don't have Melissa Caddicks in the in the mortgage broking industry. Yeah, okay, beautiful. And, and like we've already said, again, a lot of this stuff is if you're using someone that you know and trust and has a good reputation – they wouldn't be recommending you do something that's not in your best interest because at the end of the day, if you were to still get a loan and default on that loan, that would not only reflect on you, but it would reflect on that broker as well. Correct. Yeah, correct. Okay, and then the last one will be the verification standards, which is definitely my favourite part of the job. Yeah, it would be, Jess, because this relates directly to the work, a lot of the work that you do for Dave anyway. Um, but essentially, every lender will have an application checklist with Oh, how many things are, are in there, Jess? You um, know this better than I do. You've got ID, payslips, PAYG summaries, income tax returns, trust deeds, uh, yeah. financial statements. I think I've already said that. Lease documents, bank statements for salary, saving, credit. Yep. It goes on. Yeah. So depending on that client's situation, we have to supply all of, all of the that. documents that are applicable to that applicant um, because the lender wants to. Obviously, we've done our due diligence and we have verified everything, but the lender's yep. going to want to do that as well. Yeah, and that's the the bit about my job that is a little bit fun and it's like kind of like being a bit investigator vibes, a little bit Netflix, um, is when you do go through someone's documents and you pick up something that they haven't disclosed because they may not even know that it's it's relevant. But like Afterpay, for example, you get your little magnifying glass out and you're like, oh, they have an Afterpay facility. We've got to add that to the statement of position because that is still a debt. It is, yeah. yeah. Correct. And you would notice this 
and we were talking about this yesterday, this kind of double verification Mm -hmm. of information. So when you provide a whole heap of supporting documents as part of your loan application, there's things in that that relates to other things but you don't know that it exists. Yep. So when you you know, supply your PAYG summary um, or you supply you know, your notice of assessment or tax returns and the tax is too high, well, then that might suggest that you have a hex debt that you've been allowing for as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you supply a pay slip, that might show the car lease um, that you haven't declared or it might show the salary packaged um, uh, car parking spot that you haven't included in your living expenses yep. for transport and all that kind of stuff. So um, there is this kind of very, you know, obviously off the bank statements, they get, you know, double verification of a lot of things, mm-hmm. non-declared, you know, um, credit cards or, or um, short-term money. But um, in all the other documents, they all link to something else as well. Oh, and it's just looking for those links. And I think that's where you um, and a good broker comes involved because you know what the bank's going to be kind of looking for when the time comes. Yeah, yeah. that attention to detail. It is. And actually one that we have been seeing a lot of at the moment is banks really cracking down on sole trader ABNs. So if you've got a sole trader ABN that you aren't actively using, but it's still it's still active and alive, the bank's going to require you to get kind of tax agent documents to confirm its trading status and all of these things, which Look, it's not the end of the world, but I know I'd rather not spend $500 on a letter that says I've never used something yeah. if I yeah, could avoid it. That is a wee bit of a pain. And I, whenever I have to re- re- like request that the client ask their accountant for that, it's always yeah. like, oh, I don't really want to do that. And yeah, like, exactly. We may as well just close down the, B- the ABN then if you're not going to be using it. Exactly. And, and the verification that we do is always done, obviously, prior to submitting any kind of application because why would we want to submit someone for something that they couldn't afford? But it's it's also worth mentioning that any verification we do up front is still subject to require additional documents from the bank as well, isn't it? Yeah, correct. They can always come back and ask for anything that they want yep. that is going to supply them the required amount of evidence that they need by their own standards to approve the Yeah, okay. Well, I think we've kind of run off these last 15 years pretty well, haven't we? I think we have. We've covered it. People know, now know why they need to supply what they need to supply. Yeah, and if you're listening in two years' time, I'm sorry if there's even more you've got to supply, but it wasn't <laughs> us. We didn't do it. It literally will be the DNA sample that be. everyone jokes about. That's what it's going to be. Okay, well, just a quick disclaimer. Everything we have discussed here is just general in nature things that you can find with a quick Google if you need to. Um, but if you did want to get in a position uh, in organising finance or anything like that and you do want to chat about what will be required under the new regulations, yep. feel free to get in touch. Yeah, jump on our website site, you can jump on through it there through the calendar link. You can book to talk to someone this afternoon. This afternoon? Oh, We're that a, efficient. I was going to say, you're on a flight to Burley this afternoon, Dave. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you very much, everyone, for joining us. Why we pretty much just gave Dave a hard time. <laughs> Story of Dave's life. <laughs> no, yeah. but for, for all seriousness, thank you very much for joining us today as we did run through kind of the lending landscape that has been changing in the last 15 years. And if there's any questions at all, feel free to pop a comment in the uh, in the comment below on Spotify. No worries. Thank you very much, Jess. Bye, guys. Thanks, Jess. Bye. Bye. We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land this podcast is being recorded, the Ngunnawal people. We pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, both past and present.